the mysterious fate of Pharaoh Ramses III. Being the ruler of a country was a hazardous job in the ancient world. Factional palace politics often turned bloody, and relatives often refused to wait patiently for their turn to sit on the throne. The history books of many nations are filled with tales of regicide. Even the most powerful rulers were not immune, and one of Egypt's most important pharaohs was one of the victims. Ramses III, reigned 1186-1154 BCE, was most certainly murdered, even though he was a great military and political leader who saved his nation more than once. In fact, Ramses III is often considered the last great ruler of Egypt, ruling near the end of the New Kingdom at a time of great upheaval in the ancient world. The transition from the Bronze to the Iron Age during the late 13th and early 12th centuries BCE arguably changed the structure and course of world history more fundamentally than any period before or since. During this period, numerous wealthy and enduring kingdoms of the eastern Mediterranean Sea region collapsed, and new ones rose in their places. At the center of this period of turmoil was a group of people known today as the Sea Peoples, the English translation of the name given to them by the Egyptians. Despite their prominent role in history, however, the Sea Peoples remain as mysterious as they were influential. While the Egyptians documented their presence and the wars against them, it has never been clear exactly where the Sea Peoples originated from, or what compelled them to invade various parts of the region with massive numbers. Whatever the reason, the Sea Peoples posed an existential threat to the people already living in the region, as noted by an Egyptian inscription. The foreign countries, i.e. Sea Peoples, made a conspiracy in their islands. All at once the lands were removed and scattered in the fray. No one can stand before their arms. From Haiti, Kod, Karchemish, Arzoa, and Alicia on, being cut off, i.e. destroyed, at one time. A camp was set up in Amaru. They desolated its people, and its land was like that which has never come into being. They were coming forward toward Egypt, while the flame was prepared before them. Their confederation was the Peleset, Jacker, Shekelesh, Danian, and Weshish lands united. They laid their hands upon the land as far as the circuit of the earth, their hearts confident and trusting. Our plans will succeed. As with any historical matter from the ancient world, the sources can be a problem. The ancient Egyptians recorded their interactions with the Sea People in both written texts and in pictorial reliefs, and thus provide the most complete contemporary description of them. But the nature of ancient Egyptian historiography was quite different than the modern concept, so the sources cannot be considered entirely reliable. Later Greek sources, both historiographical and mythological, can help fill in some more details, but those sources are suspect because they were written several centuries after the emergence of the Sea Peoples. Modern archaeology is beneficial in determining how people lived and possibly where they moved, but there are also problems when one relies too much on archaeological data because the dating of material culture is not an exact science. Finally, 
linguistic evidence is often employed to determine the geographic origins and eventual landing points of many of the sea peoples. But confusion often arises if a group's demonym refers specifically to their place of origin or final home. The primary source from the 1162 war is the Medinet Habu Temple, the mortuary temple of Ramses III. The temple provides both textual inscriptions and pictorial reliefs that depict the various sea peoples in their native apparel. Breasted 2001-35 The texts and reliefs indicate that the war involved both land and river battles, and also involved the migration of civilians from the Levant into Egypt. As a result of the advance, the Sea Peoples and Libyans attempted a combined land and river attack against the Egyptians in year 8 of Ramses III's reign, but perhaps because the Egyptians already knew the Sea Peoples were headed in their direction, due to the intensive destruction they had caused in the Levant, the Egyptians were able to build effective defenses. The Magnet Habu texts state, I equipped my frontier in Zahai, prepared for them. The chiefs, the captains of infantry, the nobles I caused to equip the harbor mounts like a strong wall with warships, galleys, and barges. They were manned completely from bow to stern with valiant warriors bearing their arms, soldiers of all the choicest of Egypt, being like lions roaring upon the mountain tops. Breasted, 2001, 38. Ultimately, Ramses III and the Egyptians were successful in their war against the Sea Peoples, and the texts claim the defeat was total. Those who reached my boundary, their seed is not. Their heart and their soul are finished forever and ever. As for those who had assembled before them on the sea, the full flame was in their front, before the harbor mouths, and a wall of metal upon the shores surrounding them. They were dragged, overturned, and laid low upon the beach, slain and made heaps from stern to bow of their galleys, while all of their things were cast upon the water. Breasted, 2001. 39. Even after defeating his enemies, Ramses' reign of 32 years was troubled by the economic burdens of these campaigns, and low crop yields near the end of his life. The pharaoh had already named his successor, later known as Ramses IV, but, as was typical in palace politics, this stirred up jealousy among other hopefuls for the throne. One of Ramses III's wives, Tai, wanted her son Pentawur to become pharaoh, and she apparently began plotting to kill her husband. Tai laid her plans carefully and managed to get a large number of palace officials and servants on her side. No doubt they were tempted by the wealth and high offices Pentawur would give them once he became into power. Tai also had some lovely ladies from the harem who could be very persuasive. Tai managed to convince two administrators who had access to the pharaoh, a royal butler, and several other servants, as well as the overseer of the royal treasury. This last official was needed as a go-between, because he was one of the few men in on the plot who had access to the harem in the capital of Thebes, where Tai and her female followers resided. Everyone got to their places. 
a signal was given, and several of the plotters attacked Ramses while the court magician and court physician stood by casting spells to keep the guards asleep and help kill the pharaoh. The attempt was successful, and one of Egypt's last great rulers died at the hands of his own people. All of these details have been preserved in the judicial papyrus of Turin, which got its name based on where it now resides. It includes the complete court records of the case and is a fascinating glimpse into what otherwise might have been lost to history. Given that the pharaoh was considered divine, no mention of the case was ever made public. In fact, it wasn't clear just how he was murdered until a modern-day CAT scan was done of his mummy. The mummy was found in 1881 at the royal cache at Deir el-Bahri, a collection of more than 50 royal mummies that had been moved from their original tombs, most likely after they had been robbed. For many years, the remains of Ramses III hadn't been investigated closely until one researcher noticed that the net was swathed in an unusually thick layer of bandages. When put under the CAT scan, it was discovered that Ramses III's throat had been slit so deeply that the wound had almost reached the vertebrae. The physician said there was no chance the pharaoh could have survived. But that wasn't the only wound. One of his big toes was chopped off, most likely with an axe, and there might have been other wounds as well, such as bruises from cudgels or punches that are no longer visible on the ancient mummy. The trial records show that the investigation was thorough. Numerous members of the court and palace staff were found guilty and burnt alive, with their ashes being scattered in the street to assure they had no afterlife. Some of the highest officials were given the chance to kill themselves by taking poison, most likely a less painful option that would also preserve their bodies for the afterlife. Pentaur was buried in a goatskin, a ritually impure object that ensured he wouldn't have an afterlife, and his name was erased from all records. Among the accused included in the records were seven magistrates who the harem girls managed to seduce into giving favorable rulings. They were caught and tried with the rest. Oddly, there is no mention of what happened to Tai, so it is not clear if this part of the papyrus is missing or the document was redacted for some reason. Whatever her fate, the plot was a complete failure other than achieving the death of a good king. Ramses IV came to the throne, just as his father wanted him to, and ruled until his death in 1184 BCE. While there is no doubt about the fact that Ramses III was assassinated, there is plenty of controversy surrounding the fate of Egypt's most famous pharaoh, Tutankhamun. He who is the living image of the god Amun, the image of rebirth, one of perfect laws, who pacifies the two lands, one who has raised the crowns, the pacifier of the gods, the god Ra is the possessor of forms. These are the names and titles of a king who died at a young age, but the mere mention of his name brings to mind visions of gold and splendor, and thoughts of a majestic kingdom. The reality of this once king is something quite different, as his fame has less to do with his position in history, and nearly everything to do with the discovery of his tomb by Howard Carter in 1922. 
It was in 1909 that Carter began his association in partnership with Lord Carnarvon. Carnarvon had first come to Egypt in 1905 for his health after he had been injured in a car accident, and he soon became enamored of Egyptian archaeology. He had wished to fund some excavations himself, but he was told by the Antiquities Service that he must work with an experienced archaeologist before they would give him leave to excavate. This made Carter a natural partner, since Carter was a skilled and knowledgeable excavator with both the time and the inclination to form a new partnership. The two men soon gained permission to excavate and began working at Assisif, located in the Theban necropolis. Although the pair were keen to work in the Valley of the Kings, they instead found themselves working in various other sites, some even as far off as the Delta while waiting for permission to excavate in the Valley of the Kings. The American archaeologists Theodore and Davis had already been granted permission to work in the Valley of the Kings, and it was not until he retired in 1914 that Carter and Carnarvon were finally granted rights to the Valley of the Kings. It would be another eight years before the pair made their discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Perhaps unsurprisingly, those eight years of what they considered mediocre discoveries and false trails left Carnarvon frustrated and ready to give up the quest of finding a royal tomb. But Carter persevered and managed to convince Carnarvon to fund one last season, and thus the dig season of 1922 to 1923 commenced. The traditional dig season for Egypt was from November to March because Egypt's hot climate made it best to dig during the cooler months of winter. Carter and Carnarvon's excavation that year began near the tomb of Ramses VI, a somewhat unusual location as it was in line with a water runoff. Such an area would have been filled with sand and rubble that had been dumped there from the rainwater running down the mountainside. As it turned out, Carter chose just the right spot. On November 4, 1922, only a few days into the season, what looked to be the entrance to an as-yet-unknown tomb was discovered. This initial indication of a tomb was nothing more than a step cut into the bedrock of the valley floor. The next day, further dating revealed a staircase that led down to a blocked doorway. The stones blocking the doorway were plastered over with mud and covered in seal impressions bearing marks of the necropolis, though at the time no royal name could be discerned. Lord Carnarvon was away in England at the time of the discovery, so Carter refilled the stairway with rubble and sent a telegram to Carnarvon notifying him of the discovery. At last made wonderful discovery in valley, a magnificent tomb with seals intact, recovered same for your arrival. Congratulations! With that, Carter awaited his return. Carter also contacted a friend and colleague, Arthur Callender, to help with the excavation on the tomb. Upon the return of Lord Carnarvon to Gurna, the housing quarters of Carter and some of his team, the team started working again on November 23rd, with Calendar clearing the stairway in one day. That revealed more seals upon the entrance of the tomb, including one bearing the cartouche of Tutankhamun. Exciting as this discovery was, it was soon hampered by the realization that the tomb doorway had been reopened and closed again at some point in the ancient past. 
usually a strong indication that a tomb had been robbed in antiquity. Nonetheless, the discovery of what would prove to be a new royal tomb was truly exciting. Once the stone covering the doorway had been removed, a descending corridor filled with rubble was revealed and soon cleared. It took two days to do this, and on the afternoon of Sunday, November 26th, a second sealed doorway was found. As with the first doorway, it too was covered with seals and bearing the cartouche of Tutankhamun. Due to their excitement over this discovery, the group decided to make a small opening in the top left corner of the doorway, and then inserted a candle through the opening of the tomb to reveal what was inside. In Carter's own words, taken from his journal, this is what he saw. It was some time before one could see. The hot air escaping caused the candle to flicker. But as soon as one's eyes became accustomed to the glimmer of light, the interior of the chamber gradually loomed before one, with its strange and wonderful medley of extraordinary and beautiful objects heaped upon one another. There was naturally short suspense for those present who could not see, when Lord Carnivore said to me, Can you see anything? I replied to him, Yes, it is wonderful. I then with precaution made the hole sufficiently large for both of us to see. With the light of an electric torch, as well as an additional candle, we looked in. Our sensations and astonishment are difficult to describe as the better light revealed to us the marvelous collection of treasures. Two strange ebony black effigies of a king, gold sandaled, bearing staff and mace, loomed out from the cloak of darkness gilded couches in strange forms, lion-headed, hathor-headed, and beast infernal, exquisitely painted, inlaid, and ornamental caskets, flowers, alabaster vases, some beautifully executed of lotus and papyrus device, strange black shrines with a gilded monster snake appearing from within, quite ordinary-looking white chests, finely carved chairs, a golden inlaid throne, a heap of large, curious, white, oviform boxes. Beneath our very eyes, on the threshold, a lovely, lodiform wishing cup in translucent alabaster, stools of all shapes and design, of both common and rare materials, and lastly, a confusion of overturned parts of chariots glinting with gold, peering from amongst which was a mannequin, the first impression of which suggested the property room of an opera of a vanished civilization. Our sensations were bewildering and full of strange emotion. Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon had just made the archaeological find of the century, and one that has yet to be surpassed by any other Egyptologists. Excavation would continue to be carried out by an expert team of photographers, draftsmen, conservationists, and so forth, in a detailed and meticulous manner. The death of Lord Carnarvon on April 5, 1923, neither paused nor halted the recording and removal of the objects found in Tutankhamun's tomb. Oddly enough, Lord Carnarvon's death touched off one of the pop culture phenomena most associated with Tutankhamun, 
Over the centuries, Egyptian society suggested that there was a tomb curse or curse of the pharaohs that ensured anyone who disturbed their tombs, including thieves and archaeologists, would suffer bad luck or even death. Naturally, there were warnings inscribed on the tombs of many buried ancient Egyptians, made in an effort to deter grave robbers. One inscription dating back to the 3rd millennium BCE, told of Kanitka Ikiki, reads, As for all men who shall enter this my tomb, impure, there will be judgment, an end shall be made for him. I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself into him. One inscription dating back to the 3rd millennium BCE tomb of Kantika Ikiki reads, As for all men who shall enter this my tomb, impure, there will be judgment, and end shall be made for him. I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself into him. When the deaths of archaeologists were used to support the notion of a curse of the pharaohs, supernatural and scientific explanations were put forth as an answer. Carnivon had the misfortune of being bit by a mosquito and then suffering blood poisoning after cutting it open with a razor while shaving. Other strange stories were reported in conjunction with the opening of the tomb. Howard Carter always played down suggestions of a curse, but in 1926, he did consider it strange that he saw jackals of the same kind as Anubis, which guarded the entrance to the treasury room. It was the first time he'd seen that kind of jackal during his career, which by then spanned over three and a half decades. Coincidences aside, of the nearly 60 people who worked in Tutankhamun's tomb, less than 15% of them died within a dozen years. Most went on to live normal, healthy lives. Due not only to their discovery, but their efforts in conserving the objects found, Tutankhamun and his funerary possessions have inflamed the interests and imaginations of generations. However, as is often the case with discoveries of this kind, the tomb of Tutankhamun raised more questions than it did answers. Certain things were known about Tutankhamun before the discovery of his tomb, but he ruled during one of the more unique times in Egypt's history. His father, Akhenaten, has been the subject of countless academic studies and popular portrayals. As his actions and beliefs have been interpreted from a wide range of perspectives, Akhenaten has been portrayed as the world's first monotheist, an alien, an African, a homosexual, a proto-fascist, and a holder of arcane wisdom, all depending on the background of the modern writer or film director. Montserrat, 2003 But after disregarding some of the more outlandish theories concerning Akhenaten's background and motivations, it becomes clear that while he was unique among Egypt's many pharaohs in some respects, he was still nonetheless a true Egyptian king. That said, he was a ruler who affected the course of Egyptian history more than most others when he entered the historical record over 100 miles south of Amarna, in his father's palace in the city of Thebes. When Amenhotep IV began his reign, he made sure to continue his father's building's works, and to further the theological shift that placed ever more focus upon the sun god, in particular that of Ra Harakti. Ra Harakti was traditionally represented as a falcon-headed man, 
but as Amenhotep IV placed greater and greater emphasis upon the solar aspects of the god, Ra-Haratki became known as Aten, he who rejoices on the horizon in his name of light, which is the sun disk. The sun disk had already become familiar imagery in association with Amenhotep III, so it did not take long for Amenhotep IV to introduce a completely new divine image, and for the image of the falcon-headed man to become the non-anthropomorphic sun disk, with rays of light streaming out from it, ending in hands. And cults made their final shift from the dominance of the god Amun to that of the god Aten, who was the creator now. After forming the identity of the god Aten and Aten's new place in Egyptian theology as the grand creator, Amenhotep IV strove to establish the new cult of the Aten in the traditional religious centers from ancient Egypt, including that of Thebes. He even built a large temple complex to Aten in the main temple precinct of Thebes, but he met with little success, as the cult of Amun-Ra was still too strong there. Thus, Amenhotep IV decided to take more drastic measures, including disbanding the priesthoods of all the gods except that of Aten, and rediverting the funds from those cults to that of Aten. After Akhenaten's rule, Egypt entered into a period that is today chronologically confusing and not fully understood. Before Tutankhamun on the list of kings, there were two other possible pharaohs, Smenkari and Neferneferuaten. It is not known whether Smenkari or Neferneferuaten ruled independently or if they were both co-regents with Akhenaten at some point. It has even been argued that they were one and the same person, though there is a general consensus that due to the feminine T ending found in Neferneferuaten's name that she was a female ruler. Smenkari has a masculine name and is often depicted with another female by his side, presumably his wife, which makes it highly unlikely that the two rulers were the same person. It is thought by some that Nefer-Neferuaten was Neferti, although there is very little evidence to support this, short of Neferti having been known to use the title herself. While it is possible that Nefertiti ruled as a co-regent with her husband, or even briefly on her own for a very short period after his death, there is no real evidence other than conjecture to support such a hypothesis. The question of Nefertiti's status after the death of Akhenaten is further confused by the fact that all mention of her seems to disappear, so nothing is known about her death. Even less is known about Smenkari, who may have been the younger brother of Akhenaten, though there is no evidence that proves such a familial connection. It is not known whether he ruled as co-regent before Neferneferuaten or after, or if he ruled independently for a time. The main documented reference to him as pharaoh comes from the tomb of Merar II in the northern tomb necropolis at Amarna. Whilst the actual scene is lost, it is recorded that there was a scene depicting the king Smenkari and his great wife Meritaten handing out tribute from a balcony or window of appearance, just as Akhenaten and Nefertiti were so often depicted doing. With the scene now being lost, it is difficult to determine Smenkari's place within the royal 18th dynasty line. Very little is known about the end of Akhenaten's reign and the possible rule of Smenkari and or Neferneferuat. 
It is not until the reign of Tutankhamun that the historical record becomes clearer again. It is believed that Tutankhamun ascended to the Egyptian throne in 1336 BCE, and at that time his royal praenomen was Tutankhaten, not Tutankhamun. He would have only been a child of around nine years of age when he became Egypt's ruler, but he was not the first child of the 18th dynasty to ascend the throne, as both Thutmose III and Amontep III ascended the throne at very young ages as well. Unlike Tutankhamun, however, those earlier kings had female regents to help rule on their behalf until they came of age. Hatshepsut famously ruled not only as regent, but as the king in her own right on behalf of her stepson, Thutmose III, while Mutanwaya was Amenhotep III's regent. None of this may ever be known with certainty, but what is known is that the nine-year-old Tutankhamun came to the throne without a female regent. The position of trusted advisor was taken by another, one who was not even of the royal family. This replacement for the position of regent was taken by a man called Horomat, who bore no familial ties to Tutankhamun, but was the senior commander of the army. How he came to be the commander of the Egyptian army is well documented in his own coronation text, which is inscribed on the back of a statue now in the Turin Museum but why he was chosen to be Tutankhamun's advisor is not clear. Given the young king's age, it should come as no surprise that Horemeb became the strong arm behind the throne, and he was even granted titles that implied he would have the right to claim the throne in the event of Tutankhamun died without bearing any royal offspring. With the support of the military, Horemeb was able to quickly initiate strong policy changes in Egypt. Within the first year of his reign, Tutankhamun's name was changed from Tutankhaten to Tutankhamun, which means ruler of southern Heliopolis. This was a direct and pointed reference to Karnak and the cult of the sun god Amun-Ra. Tutankhamun's name was not the only thing that changed. The royal court quickly abandoned Akhenaten and moved to Memphis, and although the city continued to be occupied for a time, it quickly fell into disuse and ruin. It's clear Horoman was quickly seeing to the re-establishment of the old ways. Tutankhamun's reign is often referred to as the Restoration, an apt name for his rule, or more accurately, for Horoman's policies. The Restoration Steel is arguably the most important document of Tutankhamun's reign, as it details the so-called chaos that was brought about by Akhenaten's policies. According to the document, the gods had abandoned Egypt and the Egyptians. Prayers were no longer listened to. The once great military met continued defeat in the east, and they were unable to defend their ally, the Mitnani. They were also losing territories throughout their northern frontier. Egypt had lost its way, particularly in the eyes of the military, and Horemheb now saw his chance to change all this with Tutankhamun's ascension to the throne. Early on in Tutankhamun's reign, the traditional cults in Egypt were re-established. The military began further campaigns in the east, fighting the Hittites, and Egypt's control over Nubia was expanded. Horemheb oversaw the militaristic expansion of the kingdom, while the chief treasurer of Maya oversaw the administrative reorganization and restoration of the cults. Maya also became responsible for the demolition of the temples and images of Aten. 
first focusing on those in Thebes, and then on Amana itself. It was this act of demolition that left Amana bare and led to its final abandonment. It is believed that Maya may have also been responsible for the removal of Akhenaten's mummy from his tomb in Amana to a small tomb in the Valley of the Kings, KV 55. At least if the body found in KV 55 was indeed that of Akhenaten. Even though Tutankhamun and his advisors made a decided effort to restore Egypt's religious traditions, twenty years of the traditional cults being suppressed and the promotion of the sun god Aten had left its mark on Egypt's people. The political and cultural changes that took place during Tutankhamun's reign can be most easily understood by a study of the funerary changes that occurred. Such changes may be tracked through the developments found in tomb architecture that occurred during Tutankhamun's reign, and they endured throughout the rest of the New Kingdom period. Short of the policy changes made at the beginning of his reign under the influence of Horemheb, very little is known about Tutankhamun as an individual. He was joined with his half-sister on Kassenpaten soon after he took the throne, and she remained his only documented wife. Marriage to her may have been necessary in order to legitimize his right to rule. Ankesenpaten was the third daughter born of Nefertiti and Akhenaten, probably born around year four of Akhenaten's reign, and she would have therefore been a few years older than Tutankhamun. Ankesenpaten's early life was fairly well documented. She often appeared alongside her two older sisters, Meritaten and Mekitaten, in conjunction with their parents, Akhenaten and Nefertiti, in numerous scenes from the tomb of Akhenaten, the tombs of the elite and steels found at Amana. She became the wife of Tutankhamun after the death of their father, and she soon changed her name, just as Tutankhamun had done, to Akhesenamun, in honor of the god Amun-Ra, meaning her life is of Amun. Ever since it was discovered that the mummy of Tutankhamun was that of an adolescent, the cause of his demise had been shrouded in mystery. What caused an 18- or 19-year-old boy to die, especially when that boy had been raised in a royal court with the best foods, education, and doctors available to him? It was postulated by some that he was murdered as part of some sort of political coup. Others thought he must have been sickly and died as the result of some genetic disease or deformity. Unfortunately, the best evidence for how he died was his body, and it was poorly handled by the original excavators. There were so many objects to examine and photograph in the tomb that it wasn't until 1925 that Carter got around to unwrapping the mummy itself. It was a delicate task because the various resins and ornaments used in the mummification process had severely dried out and carbonized the body, thus making it brittle. Leading anatomist Douglas Derry performed the autopsy and did what was probably the worst job of his career. The body was covered in resins that stuck it to the interior of the sarcophagus, and, in order to take it out, Derry ended up breaking it into several pieces. When they tried to pry the gold mask off Tutankhamun's face, they broke the head off. This, of course, made it difficult for Derry and subsequent researchers to glean much information from the body. They found no obvious cause of death, such as was the case with Ramses III, but they did notice a few unusual details. First off, 
There was a severe fracture to the left distal femur that had knocked loose the patella, Nita. Derry could not determine if this injury had occurred during the young man's life or after. Once the autopsy was done, Carter and Derry reassembled the body and put him back in the inner stone sarcophagus, preserving the mummy by filling it with sand. The body and the sarcophagus were then returned to the tomb. And there it lay until 1968, when a team from the University of Liverpool x-rayed it. It was only then that the world discovered just how badly Derry had manhandled the mummy of Tutankhamun. The x-rays revealed some other surprising details. The clavicles were missing, and the front part of the ribs had been sawed away. The heart was also missing, even though it was usually preserved and put back in the chest cavity as part of the mummification process. There was also an odd bulge at the base of the skull and a couple of bone fragments inside the skull. One explanation for all of this came from researcher Bob Breyer, author of The Murder of Tutankhamun, who theorized that the young pharaoh was murdered by a blow to the back of the skull. He explained the increased density at the base of the skull as being from a subdural hematoma, which could have happened from a hard blow. This, Breyer said, led to a coma and eventually death. The bone fragments inside the skull also came from this blow. This remarkable theory earned widespread support in the archaeological community, but there are problems with it. When the mummification was done, the brain was pulled out through the nose as per custom and the empty skull filled with resin. This pulled and solidified at the back of the skull since the body was lying on its back. Why weren't the bone fragments stuck to this resin? The most likely explanation was that they broke off during Derry's mishandling of the body, not a blow to the head. At the same time, that doesn't explain the strange, dense bulge at the base of the skull. There's also the matter of the missing clavicles and frontal part of the ribs. One suggestion by physician R. W. Horror was that he was either kicked in the chest by a horse crushing his chest to such an extent that the embalmers had to dispose of the bones, or that his chest was bitten through by a hippo. Like most pharaohs, Tutankhamun liked to hunt, so neither of these explanations is as far-fetched as they may originally sound. People die every year in Africa from hippo attacks. It's odd, however, that Carter and Derry never mentioned these missing bones. This was later explained by comparing the original photos of the body taken during the autopsy with the x-rays. The photos taken during the 1920s show the clavicles and ribs intact. They also show a collar with gold beads stuck to the chest with resin, and a beaded skull cap stuck to the skull. Both of these were missing in the later examinations, which means that sometime between 1926 and 1968, these valuable artifacts had been removed. Given how firmly stuck they were, it would have taken some serious effort to remove them. Someone had to resort to sawing a large portion of the chest away. That had also shown signs of damage. Who committed this crime? Carter and his team would not have done so. There were literally thousands of more valuable artifacts in the tomb that could have been stolen with far less effort. It's likely that Tutankhamun's tomb was robbed during World War II when it was left poorly guarded. There's also been a great deal of discussion about whether Tutankhamun suffered from any disease.
Modern studies have shown that he suffered from malaria tropica. There's no direct evidence that he died from this, as so many people still do, but it certainly would have left him in a weakened condition. Modern CT scans done in 2005 also showed that two metatarsals in the left foot were deformed, most likely from osteonecrosis, bone death. This type of infection could have eventually proven fatal, although, once again, there is no direct evidence that this was the cause of death. That said, even if it wasn't what killed him, it would have compounded Tutankhamun's health problems and further weakened him. It also meant that he walked with a limp, which explains the many ornate canes in his tomb that showed signs of wear. While the CT scans gave further details about the pharaoh's health, it put to rest the idea that he had been struck at the base of the skull. The thickened, denser area turned out to be natural and not caused by a blow, although the bits of bone in the skull were found to be broken pieces of a cervical vertebrae and a portion of the foramen magnum. The CT scan also studied the break near the left knee and discovered some of the resin used in the mummification process had seeped into the fracture, proving that it had happened prior to death. This was not the case with the many hairline fractures found throughout the skeleton. These were probably due to the carbonization process and poor handling during the original autopsy. Since the fracture near the knee had not healed, it must have happened very close to the time of death. This evidence, coupled with the presence of malaria in his system, revealed by the DNA scans, combined to give a very plausible cause of death. It is very likely that Tutankhamun died of illness that was the result of the infection in his leg and malaria. Such illness would have easily brought about an unexpected and sudden death. Thus, it appears that Tutankhamun suffered some sort of bad fall on his already weakened left leg, and this would have led to internal infection and eventual death. One theory is that it happened during a chariot accident, because the king, despite the small size of his tomb, was buried with six chariots. He obviously liked them, and pharaohs are often depicted shooting wildlife or enemies with a bow from the back of a chariot. Chariots were very unstable, however, and on rough ground, a rider has to have a good stance. Perhaps Tutankhamun's weakened leg buckled under him, and he fell off. The very nature of Tutankhamun's tomb and burial support the notion that his death had been unexpected. The tomb of Tutankhamun, KV-62, is very small, especially by New Kingdom royal tomb standards. It consists of a sloping corridor that leads down to four small rooms or chambers. The plan of the tomb is very different from that of earlier E.T.'s dynasty rulers. Indeed, its small size, cramped rooms, and unusual design imply that it had originally been intended for use by a nobleman, not the king. With Tutankhamun's unexpected death, he was probably placed into the smaller tomb because his own was not completed or ready to receive a burial. The decoration found on the walls of the tomb was most likely painted on between the time of his death and burial. Though abbreviated, the decoration was still of a very traditional nature and the condensed scenes would have been due to the lack of appropriate space. These scenes depict portions of the progress of Ra through the heavens and through the underworld a clear statement declaring the return to the traditional religious practices.
There were also scenes of the king being depicted alongside a variety of deities, along with a scene showing the opening of the mouth ceremony being performed by one of Tutankhamun's advisors and soon-to-be successor, I. Despite the return to more traditional burial practices, there were still vestiges of the Amana period to be found. Some of the figures of the king and of the deities retained the same canonical proportions seen during the Armana period. It is unlikely that this was meant to make any deliberate statement concerning his lineage or religious preference, but that it was instead the result of multiple artists being used to decorate the tomb. Many of the objects that were discovered in Tutankhamun's tomb were clearly made specifically for him and his burial, such as the coffins, funerary masks, canopic equipment and statues. Other objects, such as the furniture, clothing, and chariots, were obviously items that had been used during Tutankhamun's lifetime. The motifs found upon many of his possessions depicted him in triumph over his enemies. For example, a painted wooden chest bears a fine example of such a scene. The king is shown in his chariot, followed by his troops, attacking a group of Nubians. Scenes depicting aggression and triumph over Egypt's enemies by Egypt's king are classical examples of Egyptian kingship. It is important to remember that there was much more to the objects found in Tutankhamun's tomb than just affirming his position as Egypt's ruler. All the 5,398 objects recovered from his tomb had a purpose and a role to play in helping Tutankhamun on his journey into and through the afterlife. Hidden Chambers in the Great Pyramid of Giza In addition to being one of the ancient wonders of the world, the Great Pyramid of Giza is extraordinary for a number of reasons. It is one of the greatest feats of engineering in the ancient world, to the extent that it remained the tallest built structure in the world from the time it was finished up until the Lincoln Cathedral was completed around 1300. The nearly 520-foot-tall spire of the cathedral was erected nearly 3,800 years after the Great Pyramid of Giza was constructed, a testament in its own way to the longevity of the pyramid itself. Even since then, it remains a monument that has stood the test of time, remaining the only one of the original seven wonders still surviving. Archaeologists have estimated that when completed, the Great Pyramid stood 480 feet tall, with each side measuring 756 feet in length, with a total mass estimated at being 5.9 million tons and a volume of approximately 2.5 million cubic meters. Part of the challenge in building the pyramid came from the assembling of raw materials. An internal hillock was utilized at the core, with limestone blocks and granite stones utilized for the structure itself. These were quarried wherever outcrops of suitable material were available, including some locations across the Nile River and others that were further upstream and downstream. Existing cracks in the limestone had wooden wedges hammered into them, and the wedges were then soaked with water, causing them to expand and crack the stone. In this way, limestone blocks could be removed and then cut to size. Boats were then used to transport the finished stone along the Nile to the construction location of the pyramid. 
Even today, the Great Pyramid of Giza is an imposing structure to look at, but what is currently visible of the pyramid today is merely its internal superstructure. When this was initially completed, a casing of smooth stones was added to the outer surface, giving the pyramid an exterior finish that caused it to shine blinding white in the light of the Egyptian sun. The outer casing of fine Tura limestone was gradually removed over the succeeding generations as the high-quality material was often taken and used for the building of later structures. The total number of limestone blocks used to construct the Great Pyramid of Giza has been estimated by Egyptologists at approximately 2.3 million, and as if that wasn't enough, granite stones weighing up to 175,000 pounds were used in constructing the king's chamber within the pyramid. The overall construction may have used as much as 5.5 million tons of limestone, 8,000 tons of granite, and 500,000 tons of mortar. Most extraordinary of all is the overall accuracy of the structure. Measurements taken by archaeologist Sir Flinders Petrie in the 1880s identified that the base measurements of the four sides of the pyramid had an average error of as little as 58 millimeters in length. Furthermore, the alignment of the sides is closely matched to the four compass points based on true north with a mean corner error of only 12 seconds of arc. Such measurements show a dedication to detail and accuracy on the part of the ancient Egyptians who designed and built the structure. The architects and the workers who built the pyramid achieved something no one had before, and nobody would surpass the achievement after. Having learned from the structures completed previously, such as the errors of the so-called bent pyramid, the architect was able to capitalize on existing knowledge to perfect the art of pyramid design. Like Imenhotep before him, the designer of the Great Pyramid of Giza demonstrated skill and insight in his achievement. Egyptologists believe that Khufu's vizier was the great architect behind the building of this monumental structure, a man named Himan, or possibly Himilun, Himon was born into a well-connected family in Egypt, and as the son of Prince Nefermat and his wife Itet, he was the grandson of Pharaoh Sneferu, and therefore related to the very pharaoh who he advised. After death, his own remains were buried in a tomb close to the Great Pyramid that he may have helped to realize. Regardless of whether Himon was the architect, what is known is that the pyramid was commissioned by 4th dynasty Egyptian pharaoh Khufu, Cheops in Greek, so the Great Pyramid of Giza has also been referred to as the Pyramid of Khufu or the Pyramid of Cheops. Located within the Giza necropolis in what is known as the El Giza in Egypt, the complex also contains a number of buildings, with two mortuary temples in honor of Khufu, three smaller pyramids for Khufu's wives, another smaller pyramid, a raised causeway, and small Mustava tombs. The pyramid also contained a number of chambers, including the queen's chamber and the king's chamber, along with both ascending and descending passageways. Examination of the available data suggests to Egyptologists that the pyramid construction period lasted about 20 years. A rough calculation of the requirements to achieve the total work within this time frame suggests the installation of over 1.7 million pounds of stone 
every day. Moving an average of more than 12 of the blocks into place each hour throughout both the day and the night. By any calculation, the Great Pyramid of Giza was a remarkable achievement. Unlike most other pyramids that sat above rooms cut into the bedrock, the Great Pyramid has internal rooms. These include a narrow sloping gallery that leads to a small chamber beneath the surface of the ground. A horizontal passageway heading to a chamber dubbed the Queen's Chamber and a larger passageway sloping up. This widens into the Grand Gallery, an impressively large interior space with a stepped ceiling and benches running along either side. It then levels out, passing through two stone doorways into a large room called the King's Chamber. In the so-called King's Chamber stands the remains of a massive stone sarcophagus, but there is nothing else to indicate that the pyramid was used for a burial. Historians only assume that it was, because other pyramids have yielded more substantial burial remains, and some of the pyramids at Saqqara have funerary texts carved on the walls of the inner rooms, known as the pyramid texts. There's also the question of whether Egyptologists have seen all there is to see in the Great Pyramid. That question got a new life a few years ago, when an innovative method of peering through the massive pile of stone was used on the pyramid for the first time. Using detectors originally set up to study cosmic rays coming to Earth from the universe, a team of Japanese scientists decided to see if there were any hidden chambers inside the Great Pyramid. When cosmic rays hit atoms in the upper atmosphere, they create particles called muons that strike the surface of the Earth at a rate of 10,000 muons per square meter per minute. These muons can pass through stone, although their number are gradually reduced as they do so. The rate of attrition is known, so by setting up muon detectors in the various chambers and passageways in the Great Pyramid, the scientists can figure out roughly where, and how big, any hidden space would be. They had stunning success. The investigators have found good evidence that there is a 30-meter-long chamber several meters above and roughly parallel to the Grand Gallery. The detectors weren't sensitive enough to get the exact dimensions, and it isn't clear whether the mysterious chamber is horizontal or sloped at the same angle as the Grand Gallery, but the discovery led to headlines around the world, leaving people wondering if some vast burial chamber full of treasures might be there. Given the staggering amount of wealth that was buried with a relatively minor pharaoh like Tutankhamun, it stands to reason that Khufu's magnificent tomb would include a vast array of artifacts. Most Egyptologists have more sober interpretations. They point out that the king's chamber already has a sarcophagus and was thus the most likely candidate for being the burial site. That room is big enough that it could fit a lot of treasure as well, and there are those two smaller rooms further down, the queen's chamber and the subterranean chamber. They could have been stuffed with gold as well, now long gone. A more likely interpretation of this hidden space is that it was some sort of relieving chamber, designed to reduce the weight pressing down on the Grand Gallery. A similar relieving chamber can be found above the King's Chamber. Egyptologist Bob Breyer believes that it might be an artifact of the pyramid's construction. He asserted that the Grand Gallery was used as a counterweight system to haul stones up the slope, 
with heavy stones fixed to thick ropes sliding down the slope to pull another stone up. There were sockets in the walls of the grand gallery that might have held timbers or stone struts on which the stones could ride. The hidden chamber might have performed a similar service further up. Still, the investigation has revolutionized pyramid studies, and there are already plans to scan other pyramids. A second look at the Pyramid of Cheops revealed the smaller space above the passageway leading up to the Grand Gallery. But as with so many discoveries in Egyptology, it ends up leading to more questions. The detectors can only find open areas directly above where they are placed, so any hidden chambers off kilter with known chambers and passageways will go undetected. There's also the question of what one does with the discovery. Should officials authorize digging a tunnel into these ancient monuments to see precisely what's inside? Either way, it seems safe to assume the pyramids haven't given up all their secrets just yet. The Missing Parts of the Great Pyramid of Giza Although the Great Pyramid is one of the most remarkable wonders still standing, it is actually a shadow of its former self. In antiquity, it had smooth sides, and the rough blocks that make up its core were faced with blocks of polished white limestone that gleamed blindingly in the desert sun. There are many descriptions of this dazzling sight from ancient and medieval travelers, and they reported that the sides bore a massive inscription in hieroglyphics. Unfortunately, none of these more recent sources could decipher the writing. Most of the facing stones were robbed after a severe earthquake in 1303 destroyed much of Cairo, which by then was a Muslim city ruled by the Mamluks. The Mamluks had no great love for the old pagan monuments and stripped the facing stones in order to rebuild many of the mosques and palaces that still grace the city to this day. Not wanting to have a pagan inscription on their buildings, the architects placed the stones face to face to hide the writing. Thus, whatever words adorn the Great Pyramid of Giza lie hidden within the walls of Cairo's medieval buildings. The Destroyed Pyramid The monumental works so successfully created during Farouk Khufu's reign not only provided the template, but also the motivation for the works that followed. Building vast funerary structures upon the landscape of Egypt kept the populace employed, reinforced the power of the ruler through both physical and symbolic means, and ensured longevity for the pharaoh's name long after his death. Naturally, Pharaoh Khufu's son and successor, Tidifri, sought to emulate his father's success by commissioning similar works of his own, resulting in what would come to be known as the Pyramid of Jidifri, or Jidifri's Starry Sky, as it was known in ancient times. Located at Abu Rawash in Egypt, it was constructed to be both vast and beautiful, although not as large as the Great Pyramid of Giza, measured against all of Egypt's pyramids throughout history, and at the time of its completion, it would have been the third largest of the pyramids in terms of size. Moreover, since it was built on a higher eminence in the area, it actually stood taller than the Great Pyramid. The structure had an exterior of polished granite and limestone, and the workers imported raw materials with high levels of quality. It was also crowned by a large pyramidion, the capstone at the apex of the pyramid. 
The pyramid also contains some new designs and pyramid structures. The chambers in previous pyramids were located inside the pyramid itself, but in this case, they were constructed below the pyramid. A natural mound was used as the center of the pyramid, with a pit measuring about 70 by 30 feet excavated down to a depth of over 60 feet within the mound. With the addition of a ramp and access passage, this became a chamber area, and the pyramid was then constructed over and above it. This technique was a simplification of structural design and negated the necessity for later tunneling. Other structures surrounding the Pyramid of Jadedfri also used natural mounds as their internal foundation, and a rectangular enclosure was also built around the pyramid and its associated structures. Today, when fully cleared of sand, the pyramid now stands a mere 37 feet. Despite the precision of its construction and the beauty of its outcome, the Pyramid of Jadedfri has clearly not stood the test of time, and the fact that it is little more than a pile of ruins led many early archaeologists toward the conclusion that the pyramid was not completed. Further investigation eventually led to the conclusion that the structure was in fact completed, but its use of high-quality imported building materials made it a target in later years. When this first started is uncertain, although the end of the New Kingdom has been identified as the most likely period in which materials were taken from this pyramid and used for new projects. While the Great Pyramid of Giza had its outer layers stripped and the limestone blocks were used, the Pyramid at Jadenfri fared much worse. The majority of it was taken after the conquest of Egypt under Octavian and used by the Romans to construct building projects of their own. Further materials were taken during Egypt's Christian era and used in the construction of a Coptic monastery in Wadi Karin. Regarding the gradual nature of the pyramid's destruction, Egyptologist Miroslav Werner noted, The destruction started at the end of the New Kingdom at the latest, and was particularly intense during the Roman and early Christian eras when a Coptic monastery was built in nearby Wadi Karin. It has been proven, moreover, that at the end of the 19th century, stone was still being hauled away at the rate of 300 camel loads a day. The Age of the Sphinx The Sphinx continues to be a recurring motif in imagery of the past and is utilized regularly to this day. Its replication on stamps, coins, and other such nationalistic documentation for Egypt, however, has more to do with one sphinx in particular, the monumental statue located near Cairo that stands as such a poignant illustration of the ancient world. Of all the sphinxes throughout Egypt, the most famous of all was, and is, the Great Sphinx of Giza, a monumental statue that has become a renowned part of the landscape of Egypt's past and present. Positioned as it is before the line of pyramids that stretch off into the desert, this sphinx, unlike the Greek mythological version, has the face of a man rather than a woman. To trace the reasons for this, however, one must look not to the stories of Greek mythology, but to the history and archaeology of ancient Egypt. The Great Sphinx of Giza is located on the Giza Plateau on the Nile's western bank, near Cairo. It is placed next to the Great Pyramid of Giza, below the pyramids, facing toward the east. 
The date of construction for this iconic feature remains a debated topic in contemporary Egyptology, but the most accepted period for construction is cited as during the reign of Pharaoh Khafre, whose face it is reasoned was used as the basis for the physical features of the Sphinx's own face. Although this is still debated, the evidence used to justify it includes the placement of Khafre's own tomb close to the Great Sphinx, and that computer reconstructions of the face of the monument align with other images of Khafre found in the archaeological record. As befitted a culture whose religious focus was on the afterlife, funerary customs expanded in complexity and ceremony, just as the houses for the dead became monumental features of the landscape, serving as veritable mansions for the beloved and departed. The greatest of these structures were to be the province of the richest and most powerful, the rulers of Egypt themselves. The Great Pyramid of Giza is perhaps the best known of all of these monuments. A monument of stone built upon the west bank of the Nile to house the mortal remains of the pharaoh Khufu. It is estimated that this structure, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was commissioned by the pharaoh around 2575 BCE, early on during his 23-year reign. The work was so great that it absorbed much of Khufu's period as pharaoh to see it completed, with approximately two million 300,000 stone blocks of roughly 2,500 kilograms, each laid out in a geometrically precise design. It is a stunning piece of monumental architecture and an outstanding technical building achievement. It is important to note, however, that the pyramid as it looks in present day was not how it looked upon completion at the end of Khufu's reign. At that time, limestone blocks were used to form its outer edges, meaning that it would have shone brightly in the light of the sun, a dazzling reminder after interment of the great pharaoh so recently departed. The next pharaoh was Khufu's son, Khafre, also spelled Khafra, Kifren, or even Shefren in the Greek tradition who followed his father's example in building a pyramid for his own mortal remains. Khafre also created something unique in that landscape of Egypt that no other pharaoh had done before or would do after. It is believed that during the building of the Great Pyramid of Giza, all local rock outcrops would have been utilized as sources of raw materials for manufacture. Nearby, both the Great Pyramid of Giza and the location of Khafre's own chosen resting place was a remnant outcrop, left over from the work of stonecutters busily scouring the landscape to create suitable building materials for the monumental works ordered by the pharaoh. However, rather than have it utilized for further stone blocks, Khafre had another idea altogether. He ordered that the outcrop be reshaped into the embodiment of a mythical creature. In the years that followed, the tradition would continue to develop in ancient Egypt for devoting sculpted mythical guardians for sacred places. These guardians would be visualized as creatures with human faces and lion bodies. Such mythical beasts would be realized in varying forms and sizes throughout Egypt in association with tombs but none would ever be so vast or grand as that sculpted from the outcrop on the orders of Pharaoh Khafre.
approximately 70 feet tall and 240 feet in length from outstretched paws to folded haunches. The face of this beast was probably fashioned into a likeness of the pharaoh himself. A later Egyptologist would hypothesize that the intention might have been to present an image of the pharaoh Khafre transformed into the god Horus, presenting the sun god Re with offerings. The Sphinx also had inscriptions that referred to the Egyptian lion god, Ruri, who the Egyptians believed guarded the entrance to the underworld. Later has gone so far as to note the astronomical alignment of the Sphinx and the Pyramid of Khafre during equinoxes, explaining, At the very same moment, the shadow of the Sphinx and the shadow of the Pyramid, both symbols of the king, become merged silhouettes. The Sphinx itself, it seems, symbolized the pharaoh presenting offerings to the sun god in the court of the temple. That said, as Egyptologist James Allen cautions, the Egyptians didn't write history, so we have no solid evidence for what its builders thought the Sphinx was. Certainly something divine, presumably the image of a king, but beyond that is anyone's guess. It has been estimated that the monument was first sculpted around 2500 BCE, and to this day, the great stone beast guards the Giza necropolis at its eastern approach, with further pyramids and monuments since added to the landscape, including those of Khafre and his wives. One of the overriding questions is who built the Sphinx. It was long assumed that laborers and or slaves were used, but recent Egyptologists have unearthed the remains of a large settlement likely used to house the workers, and evidence from there suggests that the people working on the Sphinx were not from lower classes. In addition to the workers apparently being fed well, the settlement could hold up to 1,500 to 2,000 people at a time. Egyptologist Lerner has speculated that ordinary Egyptians did shifts of construction work, meaning that different people shuffled in and out of the area to work on the Sphinx. If so, this was a system similar to the one used over 4,000 years later by the Inca to build Machu Picchu. The past was a vibrant, living landscape, and like the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Sphinx presumably ordered by Khafre, did not always appear then as it does now. The aesthetic of contemporary Egypt to the modern viewer is a familiar one in our current world. The crumbling sandblasted structures and raw sandstone blocks are an image tainted with nostalgia, evoking the poetic vision of the ancient past. The reality, however, is that the past was an environment with an aesthetic quite different from its archaeological remains. The broken nose of Khafre's Sphinx face was whole and full at one point. Marks of weathering were absent. The statue may once have been adorned with a beard, and there is even evidence to suggest the monument was painted in full color. A number of attempts have been made to reconstruct how the Great Sphinx in Giza would have looked just after its completion, but with such limited available data, these attempts are more guesswork than science. Nevertheless, reconstructions are important in demonstrating how different the landscape of the past really was. American Egyptologist Mark Leonard is one heritage practitioner who has utilized modern technology to shed new light on the past. 
after measuring and planning the physical space, drawing it from multiple angles, and photographing it with a stereoscopic camera, Leonard digitized a three-dimensional model of it with the assistance of Egyptologist Ulrich Kapp, architect Thomas Jaegers, and the German Archaeological Institute in Cairo. An image of Khafre was superimposed to fit over and fix the weather-worn and damaged face. The pedestal remnants between the outstretched legs of the Sphinx were altered to support a tall statue of Amenhotep II, and color was added across the surface of the Sphinx itself. The available evidence for how the Sphinx may have been colored is very limited, with remnant residues of red pigment on the face, along with some traces of blue and yellow paint elsewhere. While such reconstructions of the past may rely on a combination of guesswork and reason, the origin of the painted colors can at least be solved through the inscriptions of the past. The colored facelift for the Sphinx occurred some eleven centuries after its initial construction, around 1400 BCE. The story of how and why this occurred was recorded on a granite steel placed between the outstretched paws of the Great Sphinx and Giza at the completion of the reconstruction works. The story recorded therein tells of the pharaoh Thutmose IV, the son of Amenhotep II, who one day fell tired upon the Giza plateau and rested there, snoozing in the warm Egyptian afternoon sun. As he fell into a deep sleep, he saw in a dream the Sphinx come alive before him as a god, combining with it aspects of both the sun god Ray and the god Horus. You will be king, the Sphinx or god combination Horonaket, as Thutmose IV thought of him, spoke in the dream. You, Thutmose, will be king, but only if you free me. Free me from the shifting sands that bury my body in their flow, then you shall be granted power. When he woke from the dream, Thutmose IV had taken the words to heart and set about excavating the deep drifts of sand that had at the time settled around the body of the Sphinx. In addition to that, he encased the monument in limestone blocks and had it painted in the colors red, blue, and yellow. He also erected a statue of his father, Amenhotep II, between the paws of the great stone beast and built a mud-brick enclosure wall around the great sphinx of Giza, shaped to resemble a cartouche. Just as the dream had prophesied, Thutmose IV did indeed become the next pharaoh of Egypt. The story of Thutmose IV's works was preserved on his steel, now known as the Dream Steel, part of which read, the royal son, Thotmos, being arrived, while walking at midday and seating himself under the shadow of this mighty god, was overcome by slumber and slept at the very moment when Ra is at the summit. He found that the majesty of this august god spoke to him with his own mouth as a father speaks to his son, saying, Look upon me, contemplate me, O my son Thotmos. I am thy father, Harmachis Hopri Ra Tum. I bestow upon thee the sovereignty over my domain, the supremacy over the living. Behold my actual condition that thou mayest protect all my perfect limbs. The sand of the desert whereon I am laid has covered me, saved me, causing all that is in my heart to be executed.
This was all added to further by other pharaohs who built a chapel around it, but in the end the sands returned, at times burying the paws and body of the Sphinx, at other times burying the vast monument completely. Nonetheless, the Sphinx peered out from the sands more often than not over the past few thousand years sometimes appearing as just a head sticking out of the sand with its timeless eyes from the ancient past watching as the world continued to change around it when early twentieth-century excavation finally succeeded in clearing away the sand from the base of the sphinx the new york times itself reported the sphinx has thus emerged into the landscape out of the shadows of what seemed to be an impenetrable oblivion for over a century, the Sphinx guarding the pyramids at Giza is believed by mainstream scientists to have been built in the Old Kingdom during the reign of Khafre. While no inscription says the Sphinx was built by the pharaoh, it stands within his pyramid complex and is thus generally believed to have been built when the rest of the associated buildings and monuments were built. It was carved out of the bedrock limestone of the Giza Plateau the same material used for the building blocks of the pyramids. The limestone in the area has different layers, some more prone to erosion than others, and that has landed the sphinx's upper body and neck eroding much quicker than its legs or head. The legs were restored with a new stone facing in modern times. Still, several prominent Egyptologists are not convinced. They say it may have been built by an earlier or later pharaoh, and though no candidate has a stronger case than Khafre, an interesting stella from the late period, most likely from the 26th dynasty of Egypt, 762-525 BCE, plainly states that the Sphinx predates Khafre. Called the Inventory Stela, it is a list of holy statues owned by the Temple of Isis at Giza, and it claimed that the temple existed even before the reign of Khufu, who ruled two reigns before Khafre. The stela was discovered in 1858 at the Temple of Isis at Giza by Auguste Mariette, one of the founders of Egyptology, and the temple and the tablet were both found very close to the Sphinx. The inscription states that Khufu discovered the remains of the Temple of Isis and rebuilt it before building his pyramid complex. While on the surface, this appears to give actual proof of a religious complex dating to before the pyramids and perhaps including the Sphinx as well, Egyptologists view the inscription with skepticism. The style of the writing indicates that it is late period, and it refers to Isis even though her name does not appear in any inscription before the 5th dynasty, 2510 to 2460 BCE. Excavations of the Temple of Isis have not recovered any artifacts dating before the Middle Kingdom, 2040 to 674 BCE, so most scholars agree that it is one of many late period fakes an inscription claiming to be older than it actually is in order to give a greater pedigree to a temple. The late period was a time of religious and political strife during which temples died for influence. Thus, it seems this is more an example of ancient propaganda than an ancient recounting of historical fact. Nonetheless, a minority of Egyptologists believe this faith significantly predates Khafre.
and they claim that Khafre's mortuary complex was built around the already existing Sphinx, or perhaps those buildings might also be older than Khafre and were simply reused by him. Supporters of this theory point out that there are no ancient Egyptian writings discussing the Sphinx's construction or purpose. This is in contrast to the pyramids themselves, which are the subjects of a collection of papyri found in 2013 in a cave in Wadi al-Jarf on the Red Sea coast. Dubbed the Diary of Marir, the papyri detailed the transportation of Tura limestone from a quarry to the construction site at Giza. Murrer was an inspector overseeing the project, which sent 200 blocks a month to the site to be used for the hard outer surface of the pyramids. The local limestone, such as that out of which the Great Sphinx was carved, was softer and an inferior quality and was only used for the pyramids' interior. One argument that has caused a great deal of controversy is that the Sphinx and its enclosure walls are too eroded to be as recent as the reign of Khafre. The main proponent of this is Robert M. Scotch, a geologist and associate professor of natural sciences at the College of General Studies, Boston University. He studied the enclosure walls and Sphinx and concluded that the weathering found on them was the result of a stay and significant rainfall. While it does rain in Egypt, the average annual rainfall at Giza has only been an inchy year since the beginning of the Old Kingdom, around 2700 BCE. Considerably before that time, the Sahara was much wetter than it is today. So Scotch believes that the Sphinx dates to the 6th or 5th millennium BCE. Colin Reader, an English geologist, agrees that the Sphinx is old, based on the weathering of its stones, but gives it the more modest date of belonging to the early dynastic period, a poorly known period dating from circa 4500 to 2700 BCE. More prominent Egyptologists notably including the Zahi Hawass, point out that the poor quality of some layers in Giza limestone make it look like it has eroded more than it actually has. Scourge contends that other Old Kingdom structures at Giza were built from the same strata of limestone and don't show nearly as much weathering as the Sphinx core and its surrounding walls. Other researchers point out that the body of the Sphinx was not buried by the sand for long periods of time like smaller structures such as mastabas and temple foundations, and thus the upper portions of the Sphinx would have been weathered much more. Thousands of years of such storms would certainly have a significant effect. Another weathering process is haloclasty, whereby moisture on a limestone surface will dissolve salts, which then percolate into tiny crevices in the surface. When the water evaporates, the salt crystallizes, expanding and flaking off thin bits of limestone surface. Scotch, however, rejects this, saying that the deep, vertical erosion found on the surfaces must be from running water. He also claims that other structures at Giza, made from the same stratum of limestone, do not show the effects of haloclasty. Some scholars have countered that the vertical erosion might predate the carving of the Sphinx, being part of the original natural outcropping. There is also the question of just when the ancient climate of the Sahara began to dry up. 
One school of thought is that it didn't dry up until much later than previously supposed. In fact, not until the Old Kingdom. Those Egyptologists who favor a fourth dynasty date for the Sphinx and other monuments in Giza explain that this is why they are so weathered. Scotch, on the other hand, points to some of the mud-brick mastabas on the Giza plateau that contained artifacts from Dynasty 1 and 2, 3150 to 2700 BCE, and shows that they are not nearly as weathered as the Sphinx in its enclosure. More mainstream Egyptologists point out that these mastabas stand on higher ground. Giza is on a slope, with the Sphinx and its enclosure near the bottom thus allowing for any water to run off into it. The debate continues, with both sides stepping up their investigations to find out just who built what on the Giza Plateau and when, but while the debate over the age of the Sphinx is a valid one, with qualified specialists on both sides producing credible evidence, the grand monument has also attracted more than its fair share of fringe ideas. One that became an international sensation in the 1990s was a prediction by Edgar Cayce that a hall of records containing information about the lost civilization of Atlantis would be discovered beneath the Sphinx in 1998. Cayce came into prominence in the early decades of the 20th century through his numerous talks and books on psychic phenomena and Atlantis. He would often make predictions while asleep to an avid group of followers who would sit by his bed and write them down so they could be assembled into books. Tacy still has followers today, although his reputation took a bit of a tumble when no Atlantean Hall of Records was found in 1998, or indeed any other year. Then there's the well-known tale that during Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, some of his soldiers used the Sphinx as target practice and shot off its nose. That would have taken quite a few bullets because the base of the missing nose shows it to have been a meter wide, and archaeologist Mark Leonard studied the base of the nose and found chisel marks, proving that it had been deliberately cut off. Erosion of the marks and the type of chisel used made Leonard conclude that this was done sometime between the 3rd and 10th centuries CE, perhaps by treasure hunters. By this time, the old Egyptian religion was gone, so few would have objected to the Sphinx being defaced. Some Arab sources from the 10th century onward claim it was deliberately defaced by iconoclasts, who objected to such symbols of paganism. Indeed, Many monuments in Egypt were defaced, first by Christians and later by Muslims. An interesting bit of medieval Egyptian folklore claims that the Sphinx was defaced by a religious leader who was angry that some Falahin peasants were giving offers to the pagan statue. This is not unusual among the Falahin even today. Women wanting to concede and men who wish to find a wife or have a good crop are sometimes tempted to make offers at the old temples. To worship any other god but Allah is one of Islam's greatest sins, and any such ritual must be done with care to avoid getting arrested, or worse. It is said that after the Sphinx was defaced, the pagan god inside that had been protecting the region from being covered with sand departed, and soon most of the grand monuments around the pyramids, including most of the Sphinx itself, were buried by the desert. The Mystery of the Cocaine Mummies 
one of the more startling and puzzling mysteries of Egyptology drew international attention when a research team studying a group of mummies donned what they said were traces of cocaine in their systems. No matter how amusing the idea of coke-snorting Egyptians may be, the coca plant is a new world plant, unknown in ancient Egypt. Some have said that this is proof that the ancient Egyptians visited South America. The controversy started when German toxicologist Svetlana Balabanova of the Stabni Sangmung für Einigstichkunst in Munich examined the mummy of Hanut Toai. This woman was a priestess at the Temple of Angen in Thebes during the 21st dynasty, and the analysis of the mummy found traces of cocaine. Balabanova was at first skeptical and tested a hair shaft to make sure the mummy hadn't been contaminated. But once again, she found traces of cocaine. She also found traces of cocaine, hashish, and nicotine in samples taken from several other mummies at the same museum. Hashish was widely used by several ancient societies, so that is less surprising. But coca and tobacco leaves both came after European explorers sailed to the Americas. Tests by other researchers on other groups of mummies did not find traces of cocaine or hashish, only nicotine. Some scholars suggested Balabanova had made a mistake in her analysis. But since she redid her experiment like a good scientist, that seems unlikely. The most likely explanation is that some lab technician was enjoying a bit of a bug after a long day studying the dead, and some of the drugs fell into the samples, or perhaps got on the archaeologist's glove to contaminate the sample, or got blown by a fan onto them. Maybe the offender in question even noticed their blunder, but was too worried about the consequences to admit it. But there still remains the question of the nicotine. While some researchers believe it shows proof that the ancient Egyptians had some sort of tobacco trade going on with the Americas, there is a more likely explanation. There are other plants that contain traces of nicotine, two of which were in common use in ancient Egypt. Celery, in Guthania somnifera, a member of the nightshade family that was used in ancient medicine. It is interesting to note that the levels of the nicotine in the mummies is less than 5% of what it is in samples taken from modern smokers. This points to the probability that the ancient Egyptians got traces of nicotine through eating celery and using folk medicine rather than smoking. This does not explain the case of actual tobacco leaves associated with the mummy of Ramses II, ruled 1279 to 1212 BCE. An examination of the mummy in the 1970s revealed traces of tobacco leaves in its abdomen. Some said this was proof that the ancient Egyptians had been to the New World, since tobacco was unknown in the Old World. Others suggested that there had perhaps been an Old World strain of tobacco that had since gone extinct. The Old World tobacco hypothesis seems unlikely. Tobacco became hugely popular once early explorers learned of its use from Native Americans. Why would the Old World strain of such a popular, profitable, and addictive plant be allowed to go extinct, and why has no other trace of it been found in any excavation or the fossil record? A more likely explanation comes to the fore when scholars looked at the history of Ramses II's moral remains. 
discovered in the money cache of Deir al-Bahri in 1881. It was first examined in 1886 when it was unwrapped, and its abdomen was left open. It was then moved four more times between then and 1975. During all this time, the abdomen remained open. For much of its history, as an object of curiosity, there was little in the way of modern methods for keeping a mummy free of contamination. Before modern techniques, such as genetic analysis, carbon dating, and advanced forensics, there was simply no need. All it would have taken to start this mystery would be for some gentleman scholar to accidentally spill the contents of his pipe into the open abdomen of Ramses II. The Extent of the Egyptians' Travels The general consensus among Egyptologists is that the ancient Egyptians did not venture far beyond their borders. First of all, it was difficult, with wide, waterless deserts to the west and east, cataracts that made the Nile unnavigable just south of Aswan, and the Mediterranean Sea to the north. The Egyptians were not known as great sailors, because they did not need to be. The Nile was a generally tranquil river, and Egypt's more venturesome neighbors were happy to cross the Mediterranean to trade with them. Thus, the Egyptians never developed much in the way of an ocean-going navy. When they did conquer adjacent areas such as the Levant, it was usually in response to an invasion and was done in order to secure their homeland. A few researchers, however, have challenged this consensus and have theorized that the Egyptians explored and perhaps even colonized along the North African and East African coasts and perhaps into Europe. Some have even claimed they made it to the New World. They have provided a large amount of rather dubious evidence to support this. On April 5, 1909, the Arizona Gazette published this odd article. Explorations in Grand Canyon. Mysteries of immense rich cavern being brought to light. Jordan is enthused. Remarkable finds indicate ancient people migrated from Orient. The latest news of the progress of the explorations was now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the United States, but one of the most valuable in the world, which was mentioned some time ago in a gazette, was brought to the city yesterday by G. E. Kintay, the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the Colorado in a wooden boat to Yuma several months ago. According to the story related to the Gazette by Mr. Kincaid, the archaeologists of the Smithsonian Institute, which is financing the expeditions, have made discoveries which almost conclusively prove that the race which inhabited this mysterious cavern, hewn in solid rock by human hands, was of oriental origin, possibly from Egypt, tracing back to Ramses. If their theories are borne out by the translation of the tablets engraved with hieroglyphics, the mystery of the prehistoric peoples of North America, their ancient arts, who they were and whence they came, will be solved. Egypt and the Nile and Arizona and the Colorado will be linked by a historical chain running back to the ages which will stagger the wildest fancy of the fictionist. A Thorough Examination 
under the direction of Professor S.A. Jordan, the Smithsonian Institute is now engaging in the most thorough of explorations, which will be continued until the last link in the chain is forged. Nearly a mile underground, about 1,480 feet below the surface, the long main passage has been delved into to find another mammoth chamber from which radiates scores of passageways, like the spokes of a wheel. Several hundred rooms have been discovered, reached by passageways running from the main passage, one of them having been explored for 854 feet and another for 634 feet. The recent finds include articles which have never been known as native to this country and doubtless had their origin in the Orient. War weapons, copper instruments, sharp-edged and hard as steel, indicate the high state of civilization reached by these strange people. So interested have the scientists become that preparations are being made to equip the camp for extensive studies, and the force will be increased to 30 or 40 persons. Mr. Kincaid's Report Mr. Kincaid was the first white child born in Idaho and has been an explorer and a hunter all his life having been in the service of the Smithsonian Institute for 30 years. Even briefly recounted, his history sounds fabulous, almost grotesque. First, I would impress that the cavern is nearly inaccessible. The entrance is 1,486 feet down the sheer canyon wall. It is located on a government land, and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. The scientists wish to work unmolested, without fear of archaeological discoveries being disturbed by curio or relic hunters. A trip there would be fruitless, and the visitor would be sent on his way. The story of how I found the cavern has been related, but in a paragraph, I was journeying down the Colorado River in a boat, alone, looking for mineral. Some forty-two miles up the river from the Altavar Crystal Canyon, I saw on the east walls stains in the sedimentary formation about two thousand feet above the riverbed. There was no trail to this point, but I finally reached it with great difficulty. Above a shelf which hid it from view from the river was the mouth of the cave. There were steps leading from this entrance some thirty yards to what was, at the time the cavern was inhabited, the level of the river. When I saw the chisel marks on the wall inside the entrance, I became interested, securing my gun and went in. During that trip, I went back several hundred feet along the main passage till I came to the crypt in which I discovered the mummies. One of these I stood up and photographed by flashlight. I gathered a number of relics, which I carried down the Colorado to Yuma, from whence I shipped them to Washington with details of the discovery. Following this, the explorations were undertaken. The Passages The main passageway is about 12 feet wide, narrowing to 9 feet toward the further end, about 57 feet from the entrance. The first side's passages branch off to the right and left, along which, on both sides, are a number of rooms about the size of ordinary living rooms of today, though some are 30 by 40 square feet. These are entered by oval-shaped doors and are ventilated by round air spaces through the walls into the passages. The walls are about three feet six inches in thickness. The passages are chiseled or hewn as straight as could be laid out by an engineer. The ceilings in many of the rooms converge to a center.
The side passages near the entrance run at a sharp angle from the main hall, but toward the rear they gradually reach a right angle in direction. The Shrine Over a hundred feet from the entrance is the cross hall, several hundred feet long, in which are found the idol, or image, of the people's god, sitting cross-legged with a lotus flower or lily in each hand. The cast of the face is oriental in a carving this tavern. The idol almost resembles Buddha, though the scientists are not certain as to what religious worship it represents. Taking into consideration everything found thus far, it is possible that this worship most resembles the ancient people of Tibet. Surrounding this idol are smaller images, some very beautiful in four, others crooked neck and distorted shapes, symbolical, probably of good and evil. There are two large cacti with protruding arms, one on each side of the dais on which the god squats. All of this is carved out of hard rock resembling marble. In the opposite corner of this cross hall were found tools of all descriptions, made of copper. These people undoubtedly knew the lost art of hardening this metal, which has been sought by chemicals for centuries without result. On a bench running around a workroom was some charcoal and other material probably used in the process. There is also slag, and stuff similar to mate, showing that these ancients smelted ores, but so far no trace of where or how this was done has been discovered, nor the origin of the ore. Among the other finds are vases or urns and cups of copper and gold made very artistic in design. The pottery work includes enameled ware and glazed vessels. Another passageway leads to granaries, such as are found in the oriental temples. They contain seeds of various kinds. One very large storehouse has not yet been entered, as it is twelve feet high and can be reached only from above. Two copper hooks extend on the edge, which indicates that some sort of ladder was attached. These granaries are rounded as the materials in which they are constructed, I think, is a very hard cement. A gray metal is also found in this tavern, which puzzles the scientists, for its identity has not been established. It resembles platinum, strewn promiscuously over the floor everywhere, or what people call cat's eyes, a yellow stone of no great value. Each one is engraved with the head of the Malay type. The Hieroglyphics on all the urns, or walls over doorways, and tablets of stone which were found by the image, are the mysterious hieroglyphics, the Tita which the Smithsonian Institute hopes yet to discover. The engraving on the tables probably has something to do with the religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphics have been found in southern Arizona. Among the pictorial writings, only two animals are found. One is of a prehistoric type. The Crypt the tomb or crypt in which the mummies were found is one of the largest of the chambers, the walls slanting back at an angle of about 35 degrees. On these are tiers of mummies, each one occupying a separate hewn shelf. At the head of each is a small bench, on which is found copper cups and pieces of broken swords. Some of the mummies are covered with clay, and all are wrapped in a black fabric. The urns or cups on the lower tiers are crude, while as the higher shelves are reached, the urns are finer in design, showing a later stage of civilization. 
It is worthy of note that all the mummies examined so far have proved to be male, no children or females being buried here. This leads to the belief that this exterior section was the warrior's barracks. Among the discoveries, no bones of animals have been found, no skins, no clothing, no bedding. Many of the rooms are bare but for water vessels. One room, about forty by seven hundred feet, was probably the main dining hall, for cooking utensils are found here. What these people lived on is a problem, though it is presumed that they came south in the winter and formed in the valleys, going back north in the summer. Upwards of fifty thousand people could have lived in the caverns comfortably. One theory is that the present Indian tribes found in Arizona are descendants of the serfs or slaves of the people which inhabited the cave. Undoubtedly, a good many thousands of years before the Christian era, a people lived here which reached a high stage of civilization. The chronology of human history is full of gaps. Professor Jordan is much enthused over the discoveries and believes that the find will prove of invaluable value in archaeological work. One thing I have not spoken of may be of interest. There is one chamber of the passageway to which is not ventilated and when we approached it, a deadly, snaky smell struck us. Our light would not penetrate the gloom, and until stronger ones are available, we will not know what the chamber contains. Some say snakes, but others boo this idea and think it may contain a deadly gas or chemicals used by the ancients. No sounds are heard, but it smells snaky just the same. The whole underground installation gives one of shaky nerves the creeps. The golem is like a weight on one's shoulders, and our flashlights and candles only make the darkness blacker. Imagination can reveal in conjectures and ungodly daydreams back through the ages that have elapsed till the mind reels dizzily in space. The idea of a grandiose Egyptian underground city has lived on in Arizona folklore, and the idea has been passed down by word of mouth for more than 100 years. The story has no basis in fact, however. The Smithsonian denies there was ever such an expedition. There is no record of a Kincaid or Professor Jordan working at the institution, and no one has ever found the supposed Egyptian underground city again. It appears the Arizona Gazette article was a simple fabrication, one of many the frontier press pulled in order to grab readers. Indeed, no less a literary figure than Mark Twain got his start in fiction, writing humorously bogus pieces for his brother's newspaper in the Nevada Territory. The idea of Egyptians coming to the New World has lived on, however. Numerous books and articles have been published asserting this claim, with many pointing to a superficial similarity between the Egyptian pyramids and those of the Aztec, Maya, and other Mesoamerican cultures. While it at first appears striking that such far-flown cultures would both have pyramids, a closer look reveals little to get excited about, because the pyramids of Egypt and Mesoamerica differ in both form and function. The Egyptian pyramids, except for the stepped pyramid of Saqqara, all have smooth sides, while those in Mesoamerica are stepped. The Egyptian pyramids are tombs, with networks of tunnels inside or below them, while those in Mesoamerica are temples, although a few also had tombs, and are generally solid. Also, 
there's a wide disparity in dates. The oldest Mesoamerican pyramid is at La Venta in Tabasco, Mexico, which was built by the Olmec sometime between 1000 and 400 BCE. The last pyramids in Egypt were built in the 12th dynasty, 1991 to 1785 BCE, nearly 1000 years earlier. There is also the problem of the lack of Egyptian artifacts in the New World. The supposed expedition to the Grand Canyon brought back nothing, and no genuine artifacts have been found anywhere in the New World since. There's also the question of why none of the useful Old World crops and animals, such as wheat, barley, cattle, chicken, and horses, have been found in New World sites. Some writers have claimed that ancient Egyptians may have traveled even further than Arizona. They suggest the Egyptians sailed down the east coast of Africa, across the Indian Ocean, and all the way to Australia. This remarkable claim comes from the discovery of a set of what appears to be hieroglyphs on a stone in Australia at Carrion, on the central coast of New South Wales. Called the Gosford Glyphs, they were first reported in the 1970s. They are a collection of almost 300 carvings on two flat walls of sandstone, and some of them do appear to be Egyptian hieroglyphs. A study by Australian Egyptologists, however, reached a different conclusion. Hieroglyphs changed a great deal over the long span of Egyptian civilization, and the Gosford glyphs incorporate signs spanning 2,000 years. An even bigger issue is that they don't say anything, meaning they give the appearance of having been carved by someone who had seen hieroglyphs but did not understand them. It is also odd that they would be on Australia's east coast, much farther away from Egypt than the west coast. As if that wasn't enough, sandstone, especially in coastal areas, erodes fairly quickly, and the carvings are clean, showing little sign of weathering. In contrast, some aboriginal carvings dated to 250 years ago on another sandstone wall in the area are so eroded that they're barely visible. One Australian professor theorized that they were carved by a returning Australian soldier after World War I or World War II. Many Australian troops were stationed in Egypt, first to fight the Ottomans and then to fight the Germans and Italians. Perhaps a soldier's free Egyptian vacation inspired him to decorate some rocks when he got back home. This is documented to have happened at Kurungai National Park near Sydney, where a returning Anzac carved a sphinx and pyramids out of the local sandstone. Despite all evidence to the contrary, some local researchers still remain hopeful. They have made their own interpretation of the Gosford glyphs, and they've even found a third section of hieroglyphs plus a network of carved tunnels at the site. A Dutch chemist by the name of Dr. Renaud Hem de Jong translated the carvings as followed. For His Highness the Prince, from this wretched place in this land, where we were carried by ship, engraved for the crown of Lower Egypt, according to God's word. My fellow Egyptians call out from this place in this strange land for the god Suti. I, Nefer Jisem, son of Khufu, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, beloved by Ta, has brought the god Suti. 
the prince was kind and benevolent, follower of the sun god Ra. For two seasons, eight months, he directed us eastward, weary but strong to the end, always praying, joyful and sniting insects. He, the servant of God's aid, God, created the insects to protect his people. I, myself, am hardened, have gone around hills and deserts, in wind and rain, with no lakes at hand, blessed by the falling nights, when I hide myself, completely out of reach. In our last camp I cooked fowl on hand, and brought rain, but hurt my back, tearing the golden falcon standard, crossing hills, desert, and pools of water along the way. Plants are withering, land is dying. Is this our lot from the highest god of the sacred mare? The sun is pouring down upon our back. Almighty Kepera, this is not what the oracle has said. Our hearths are overturned, but not broken. This regal person, Nefertibru, came from the temple of God in Penu, Egypt. He came from the house of God. He was the son of Khufu, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. He who died before is here laid to rest. May he have life everlasting. He is never again to stand beside the waters of the sacred myrrh. Then clasp him, my brother's spirit, to thy side, O father of the earth. The snake bit twice. We, followers of the divine Tien Khufu, mighty one of lower Egypt, Lord of the two Adzes, we shall not all return. However, we have to continue. We cannot look back. All creek and river beds are dry, and we are dismayed. Our boats are tied up with rope. Death was caused by snake. We gave egg yolk from the medicine chest and prayed to Amun, the hidden one, for he was struck twice. It was a hard time for all of us, weeping over the dead body, keeping to the protocol. Seated all aside, our men watched the funeral with concern and deep love. How the mummified body was buried in the red earth section. Then we recovered ourselves. We walled in the side entrance to the chamber with stones from all around. The chamber was aligned with the western heavens. I counted and impounded the daggers of our men. The three doors of eternity were connected to the rear end of the royal tomb and sealed in. Young's convoluted translation has been spurned by academic circles. No accredited Egyptologist has been able to make any sense of the carvings, insisting that they are simply a random collection of symbols thrown together. Several have gone on record as having tried to translate them and said they were obviously carved by someone who did not know ancient Egyptian. The true believers counter this by saying the inscription is written in something called Proto-Egyptian, an archaic form that Egyptologists can't fully translate. Why amateurs can translate something Egyptologists could not is an open question. Another question one might ask is why this Proto-Egyptian would still be used in the time of Khufu, when hieroglyphs had already been in use for centuries. In addition, 
There are numerous symbols scattered around the sandstone surface that don't look like hieroglyphs at all. Supporters of the Gisford glyphs simply ignore these. Then there are the historical errors with the story itself. There are several surviving inscriptions listing Khufu's family, and neither prince in a translation is mentioned. Also, Jesemin is not an ancient Egyptian name or word, and Lord of the Two Adzes was not an official title in ancient Egypt. These are just a few of the major errors found in the translation. Amusingly, the Gosford glyphs aren't the only reported ancient Egyptian artifacts in Australia, because the nation is also home to a pyramid. The Gimpai Pyramid, as it is called, is a terraced hill with a roughly triangular profile in Queensland that some imaginative researchers claim was built by the Egyptians. Others say it is Inca, or Chinese. The first proponent of the Egyptian pyramid hypothesis was writer Rex Gilroy, who has written numerous books on cryptozoology and UFOs. He claimed the pyramid was built by Egyptians who came to Australia to mine its rich mineral resources, even though there are equally rich mines far closer to home. A more prosaic explanation is that the terraces on the hill are, indeed, terraces that were built by early settlers farming the area. Several other similarly dubious pyramids have been found in Australia, none of which have produced ancient Egyptian artifacts or writing. Another Egyptian pyramid is found in Bosnia. This region at least has the advantage of being the place the Egyptians could have conceivably visited. The Egyptians were part of an extensive trade network across the eastern Mediterranean, and while there is no evidence that Egyptian ships sailed directly to the Balkans, surely at least some individual Egyptians visited the various lands around the northeastern portion of the sea. There are hundreds of pyramid-shaped hills distributed in and around central Bosnia and Herzegovina, yet one in particular has achieved worldwide attention over the last decade. Found in the small town of Visoko, located about 30 kilometers northwest from Sarajevo, the hill is the tallest point in a landscape of tremendous historical importance for the country. The region has been occupied from prehistoric times. Rich in natural resources, the area was extensively quarried for metal ore and stone over many periods. In the medieval period, 12th to 15th centuries CE, this area became the center of the Kingdom of Bosnia. It was here that the first king of Bosnia, Vertko I, was crowned in 1373 CE. During this time, the large hill became known as Vizosica, and a fortress was constructed upon its summit. From 1463, the Ottomans controlled them, and under their rule, many towns were founded, including Visoko, which experienced a surge of economic development and cultural activity, and became one of the richest towns in Bosnia. The town was of key importance in Bosnia's modern history, serving as a stronghold for Bosniak forces during the conflict in the 1990s. However, it is not for these reasons that the hill in Vysosisa is so well known today. Instead, the focus of attention has been on the controversial claim that it is the largest and oldest man-made pyramid to be found, not only in Europe, but the world. Since 2005, the Bosnian-born American businessman and self-proclaimed archaeologist Samir Osmanovic has promoted a controversial narrative of how and why the hill exists. 
He maintains that the socia is not a natural feature, but was made by an ancient Bosniak civilization during the last ice age, between 10,000 and 12,000 years ago. Its substructure is allegedly filled with an intricate network of passageways that connect it to other structures in the surrounding landscape built during the same time. If true, the scale of these pyramids would have required the largest construction works to have ever been performed in prehistory. But this theory has been fiercely criticized by archaeologists, geologists, pyramid experts, journalists, and countless other academics and non-academics. Many scientific specialists and laypersons have gone to Visoko to see the site with their own eyes and reported that there is little evidence to suggest the validity of Samir's claims. Furthermore, some of the claims made of the pyramid are borderline science fiction, featuring everything from aliens to the mythical civilization of Atlantis. Through the use of popular and journalistic media, rather than academic channels, Mr. Osmanigic has garnered the attention of many hundreds of volunteers that come to Visoko each year. Conflicting accounts testify to what takes place. Is it legitimate archaeology being carried out, or the creation of a money-making theme park for tourists? Can the Bosnian pyramid be considered genuine, or is this but one example of widespread and pseudoscientific pyramid mania that occurs across the globe? Why do people believe in the fantastic stories woven around the Pyramid of the Sun? And why is the academic community so critical of this phenomena? And who, exactly, is Samir Usmanagic, without whom the story would not exist? Geologists and archaeologists were not impressed by any of the theories. The geologists pointed out that the hills were natural formations, called flat irons, formed when a steeply sloping stratum of rock overlays a strata of softer material. Indeed, hills of roughly pyramidal shape can be found in many regions. Plus, the hills do not form true pyramids as those made in Egypt. A look at the biggest pyramid with Google Earth view shows that only one side is roughly a pyramid shape, with the other side being much less geometric. Undaunted, Osmanagic has traced an entire civilization in the region with a pyramid of the sun, a pyramid of the moon, a pyramid of love, a temple of earth, and a pyramid of the drag. In response, the European Association of Archaeologists issued a declaration stating, We, the undersigned professional archaeologists from all parts of Europe, wish to protest strongly at the continuing support by the Bosnian authorities for the so-called pyramid project being conducted on hills at and near Visoko. This scheme is a cruel hoax on an unsuspecting public and has no place in a world of genuine science. It is a waste of scarce resources that would be much better used in protecting the genuine archaeological heritage and is diverting attention from the pressing problems that are affecting professional archaeologists in Bosnia-Herzegovina on a daily basis. The hilltops were indeed used by ancient cultures. The Soko was a capital in the medieval period, and the ruins of a 14th-century castle that served as the seat for Bosnia's kings was located on top of one of the largest of the Pyramid Hills. Roman and prehistoric sites, as well as fossils, have also been found on the hilltops. 
Much of this archaeological material has been swept away by Osmanagic's reworking of the hills. While some pseudoscientific researchers have suggested a link between the pyramids of Bosnia and Egypt, saying that Bosnia was a colony of the more famous civilization, Osmanagic and his team reject this idea. His theories have a distinctly nationalist flavor. Indeed, any Bosnian researcher who disputes him is often labeled anti-Bosnian. While Osmanagic posits an ancient Bosnian origin to his pyramids, he has gladly used the glamour of ancient Egypt to help his advertising. He brought Egyptian geologist Ali Abdullah Barakat, claiming Barakat was recommended by Zahi Hawass, then Egyptian Minister of State for Antiquities Affairs. Hawass denies any involvement and says that Barakat is neither an archaeologist nor an expert on pyramids. Barakat wrote a report saying that the Bosnian pyramids were natural hills sculpted into pyramid shapes. Other geologists, both Bosnian and international, refute this, saying the shape is entirely natural. The need for self-identity and money after their traumatizing experiences are certainly large driving factors in the Bosnian people's tolerance of the controversies associated with the Pyramid of the Sun. This takes place in a country that is very much still recovering from the genocidal war of the 1990s, and there is a strong need felt by communities across the Western Balkans to reinforce local and national identities. Today, the residents of Visoko are strong supporters of the Bosnian Nationalist Party, but Osmanagic says that the project, through its study of an ancient civilization separated from modern tensions and conflicts, is successfully unifying Croats, Serbs, Macedonians, and Bosnians in a constructive and friendly environment. Wellesley College anthropologist Philip Cole says that Osmanagic's pyramids exemplify the former Eastern Bloc in that, when the Iron Curtain collapsed, all these land and territorial claims came up, and people had just lost their ideological moorings. There's a great attraction in being able to say, we have great ancestors, we go back millennia, and we can claim these special places for ourselves. For these reasons, Osmanovich is treated with admiration, if not as a hero, by many in the Soko and the country who see his actions as a matter of ethnic and national pride. The pyramid nearby is very much embedded in the local community, its symbol displayed on shop signs, motels, road signs, taxis, sugar packets, and coffee cups around town, and those working on the project are treated as minor celebrities by the locals. Some have claimed the energy and interest focused on the pseudo-archaeology of the Bosnian pyramids may one day be redirected into the rest of the country's heritage, and for this reason, Osmanagic's actions can be seen in a positive light. To look at this project with rose-tinted glasses, however, is a mistake, as the Bosnian pyramid scheme has produced a number of threats to the country's cultural heritage. Despite universal rejection by the scholarly community, the Bosnian pyramids are still a popular tourist attraction and have helped the economy of the struggling region. Local restaurants fill up with visitors wanting to eat local cuisine on pyramid-shaped plates, and shops sell t-shirts and Osmanagic's books to the thousands of people who pass through. 
Meanwhile, there is no solid evidence that the ancient Egyptians ever traveled such long distances. Their ships were made for hunting the coast, not crossing the vast Atlantic Ocean. The theories that the Egyptians reached Arizona or Australia say more about the enduring fascination with this great ancient civilization than it does about what actually happened thousands of years ago. An Etruscan mummy? Egypt conducted extensive travel throughout the Mediterranean, especially the eastern half. The land of the Nile had much to offer, and Egyptian artifacts have been found all around the coastal regions of the sea. However, foreign artifacts in Egypt are sparse, a sign that the Egyptians were culturally conservative and preferred their own art forms to those of foreign lands. They mainly imported raw materials, such as metals and Lebanese cedar. Nonetheless, researchers occasionally turn up something unusual. In the mid-19th century, a Croatian traveler named Mihada Mari visited Egypt and bought a late-period sarcophagus with a female mummy inside as a gift for his wife. While perhaps not the most romantic memento to give a loved one, this was actually quite a common practice in the days before antiquities laws. Once he got home, Bari propped it up in his living room, removing some of the outer bandages so the dried-up woman could be more clearly seen. The linen was placed in a separate glass case. After Barik and his wife died, the mummy and wrappings passed to his brother, who donated it to the National Museum of Slovenia and Dalmatia, now known as the Archaeological Museum in Zagreb. Scholars there noticed that the outer linen wrappings that Barik had removed were covered with some sort of writing divided by twelve vertical columns into sections, and that folds in the linen showed that it had been folded along these columns, creating an effect much like the pages of a book. The inscription remained untranslated for many years. It was assumed to be Demotic, a simpler form of writing than Hieratic. Hieratic is the form of language people generally associate with ancient Egyptian writing full of pictures of birds and hands and other objects in geometric shapes. Demare is made up of squiggly characters that have only a vague resemblance to their original hieratic forms and at first glances looks like Arabic, written by a rather messy hand. Another idea was that the writing was Coptic, the language of the Egyptian Christians. Their language is derived from ancient Egyptian and the writing is a blend of Greek letters and Demare. It wasn't until 1891 that the truth was revealed. A Viennese expert in the Coptic language named Jacob Kral studied the text and found that it was actually Etruscan. The Etruscans were the predecessors of the Romans, controlling much of Italy from 900 to 27 BCE, when the last Etruscan holdouts were taken over by the expanding power of Rome. From the moment the language was identified, People wondered why a mummy was buried in an ancient Egyptian tomb in the Egyptian manner with an Etruscan book. Unfortunately, the book, known as the Liber Lintius Zabrablinius, Zabrablinian book, wasn't much help, because Etruscan is a lost language. Few inscriptions remain, and these are generally short. In fact, at 1,200 words, the Liber of Lintius Zadraminius is the longest piece of Etruscan text ever found, and nobody can fully read it. 
Further investigation revealed that the woman was in fact Egyptian, not Etruscan, and that a papyrus found in her tomb that had ended up in another location stated her name as Nessie Hensu, the wife of a tailor at Thebes. There have been advances in Etruscan studies in recent decades, and now some of the texts can be puzzled out. The names of various gods and goddesses are known, as well as some important words. With this, scholars have found that the Liber Lintius Zebraminius is some sort of liturgical calendar. The deities mentioned were mostly local ones, worshipped in the region around Lake Prasinino, about 110 miles north of Rome. So why was an Egyptian woman married to an Egyptian man, buried in the Egyptian manner with an Etruscan religious calendar placed on her chest? Was her husband an Etruscan immigrant who took on an Egyptian name? Was she a convert to an Etruscan cult that somehow made its way to Upper Egypt? That remains a mystery, and probably always will.